You're listening to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. In this week's episode, Hannah Grenade, a tech entrepreneur and former partner at McKinsey, chats with Matt Harris, Managing Director at Bain Capital Ventures. They talk about the most interesting areas in fintech innovation, taking a look at some hits and misses, and potential untapped areas of opportunity. Matt also talks about why the merchant's payment battleground is no longer a great space for startups, and why insurance is poised to be the final frontier for fintech innovation. Enjoy the episode. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Absolutely. So we want to talk about is your view on fintech and to zero in on some of the areas where you're seeing interesting activity um, and uh, and where you're thinking that there's opportunity that really needs to be captured. Um, could we start, though? Maybe you could tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Yeah. I, uh, let's see, I started at Bain Capital in 1995 when it was a much smaller firm, uh, a private equity firm only. Uh, the firm got pretty big over the course of the 90s, and I decided to, to leave to do something more entrepreneurial. So I started a firm called Village Ventures. And uh, one of the things you learn when you run your own firm is you kind of have to have a strategy. So I decided uh, about 15 years ago that, that I would focus on financial services companies, largely because there wasn't really anyone doing it. And it seemed like, uh, you know, there's a, a huge industry, 20% of the U.S. economy and based largely on technology and, you know, seemed like there was room for disruption. So I, um, you know, set out to become an expert as much as one could from the seat of a venture capitalist in all the aspects of, of financial services and fintech, which was pretty lonely at first, uh, then got pretty crowded. Uh, and it was in the context of fintech really becoming a legitimate sector and then you know, increasingly popular one that I decided to come back to Bain Capital Ventures, where I now run the fintech practice and, and run the New York office and uh, have found this to be, for the last four years now, a great platform to continue to invest in innovative financial services companies. And it's been a, a really fun place to be. So you've had the opportunity to see quite a lot of change in fintech from when it uh, really wasn't a lot to now that it's become a much hotter space. What are the areas that you think are most interesting? Well, the the framework that I laid out at the beginning and that we still use actually are, uh, we think about four major subsectors, payments, lending, investing, and insurance uh, are sort of the constituent elements and People sometimes separate real estate, which has aspects of many of those as its own segment. And, and we talk a lot internally about technology for chief financial officers as being also included in the definition of fintech. But I think you can really resolve it to those four sectors and, and kind of in that order, if you look at what has been most um, prominent as fintech uh, itself uh, grew to be a larger percentage of the U.S., venture industry, surely the first segment to gain popularity was payments, followed by lending. Um, and then subsequently, we've had a lot more activity in the investing and capital market space, innovations in asset management, products and services, et cetera. And now here, finally, particularly in the last six months, and I think ongoing into 2016, there's been a lot of talk about insurance as being the, the final frontier for fintech innovation. So let's zero in on some of those older ones on payments and lending. What do you think the primary innovations are that companies have brought, say, in payments to the space? Well, I think when most people talk about payments, they're referring to consumer payments, and in particular, generally speaking, to the to the merchant payments experience. And you know, this is really an area that PayPal began, you know, even before 01 and 02, when I started focusing on this, was really the 
sort of the granddaddy of, of fintech in a way, recognizing that e-commerce was a new uh, a new commerce modality and as such created new payment problems and new payment opportunities. And PayPal, which started as a, a peer-to-peer payments platform, effectively and entirely morphed to be for use in e-commerce as a merchant acceptance platform. And and most of the the sort of bold-faced names in venture-backed payments have followed that same path to one extent or another. Square solved a, a real-world payments problem, which was that there were many smaller and micro vendors, merchants, that weren't taking uh, card payments. And that newly empowered with tablets and smartphones, they all of a sudden were potential card acceptors. And Square basically innovated around risk methodologies for enabling folks that weren't really traditional retailers to, to take card payments. You had Braintree and Stripe as sort of next generation PayPal players. And now you have even newer iterations of that same you know, peer-to-peer initially morphing into merchant payments, players like Venmo, which is now part of PayPal, and then Facebook now uh, introducing, at first, again, peer-to-peer payments, but shortly, no doubt, some version of merchant payment. So it's the same pattern repeating over and over again, which is to say new account structures that match with the way we live today. Um, first, it was online, then it was mobile, now increasingly social account structures that are easier and easier to use theoretically more secure due to additional layers of authentication, be they biometric or uh, or based on on human behavioral patterns, uh, making it easier and easier for us to share money with each other where there's no money to be made, and then eventually share money with vendors where there is, of course, the traditional two percent to be made. So that's been basically the payment story to date in terms of what's been funded and and what's really worked. Now. I mentioned Facebook, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll end with this observation. It is the case, in my view at least, and, and in, I think increasingly approaching conventional wisdom, that, that many of those battles are kind of reaching a conclusion. And that the entry of players like Facebook, and perhaps most notably Apple, have kind of signaled that perhaps this merchant payments battleground is not the best place for startups to be you know, to be choosing as the market opportunity, that there's a maturity happening. And there's also really a, a sort of an expectation of ubiquity that companies like Apple and the other major technology players have a chance to offer, though notably Google certainly failed every time they've tried in payments. So even if you are already ubiquitous and global and dominant, it doesn't mean you can introduce a new payment type. But I'm seeing less and less in the way of new startups in the merchant payment space because I think there's an acknowledgement that the the elephants have entered the entered the dance hall. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, one of those elephants for a moment. What do you think happened with the Google story here? Well, Google um, interestingly bought their way into the the payments business by buying one of my portfolio companies at the time, a company called TXVIA. Um, which was the, the, the dollar amount was never announced, but it was a multi-hundred million dollar acquisition and it, and it served as the catalyst for their New York office and brought them a bunch of, of both payment technologies and payment technologists. And it was on that, that they were on that chassis really, that they launched Google wallet. They didn't think hard enough about a value proposition, to be honest. I mean, 
everything worked and TXVIA had fabulous technology. But it turns out as, you know, for instance, American Express found with their purchase of Revolution Money and everyone to date up through Apple Pay and Apple Pay, the jury is surely still out. That, you know, consumers require a fair amount in the way of incentive to change their behavior at, uh, at retail. And Google, I guess, implicitly assumed that people would be, at least there'd be a, a large cohort of early adopters who are just interested in the novelty of payments offered by someone like Google. Um, but that's simply not true. I mean, there's, you know, people don't actually look to payments as an area for vast amounts of experimentation because people tend to be directionally conservative uh, with money. So I think you know, the only company that's really demonstrated large-scale behavior change is Starbucks. And I'm not sure that that's a, an example that can be followed by too many other players, retailers or other. I mean, Starbucks has this incredibly advantageous position where the customers go once a day or multiple times a day. So it, it really lends itself to habit formation. They have like 95% gross margins, so they can offer an effective discount of 6 or 7% for their loyalty program. And they've got us, you know, early smartphone using wealthy demographic who are sophisticated and, and, you know, adaptive. So I don't know of anyone else who has that same set of characteristics. And so I think Starbucks is a little bit of a false positive, but, you know, Apple Pay or something similar will have its moment. I'm just clearly 2015 wasn't yet its moment. And uh, we shall see if 2016 will be. You know, it's funny you bring that up about Starbucks. I was thinking the other day that I'm probably the last person who would adopt a mobile wallet. And I realized I have a Starbucks wallet. Right. And it's because I went out to Starbucks one day, forgot my wallet and needed a way to pay for it. And so, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting case study. Do you think there are any others who are able to replicate that? Or is it just such a unique value proposition and customer base? Well, um, I tend to think it's unique. Uh, we've now seen in the past month a number of other retailers, Walmart first, followed by Target, followed oddly by Kohl's, um, launch their own eponymous payment methods, Walmart Pay, Target Pay, etc. In general, I think the there's a couple things at work that could give you reason for optimism. So in the case of Walmart, they actually serve millions of underbanked uh, people. So this is sort of the opposite approach, the opposite opportunity of Starbucks. They've got people who use their local Walmarts for check cashing and other forms of alternative financial services. And so these aren't people who are perfectly satisfied using credit and debit cards. These are people who don't actually have good payment options and who are heavy users of Walmart and who trust Walmart already with financial services. And so they may well be inclined to think about Walmart pay as a more efficient, less expensive way to, to just move value around, certainly less expensive than a check casher um, or even paying ATM fees or the other very expensive things that people who are un and underbanked have to resort to. So that's a sort of the bull case on Walmart pay. Uh, I think the, the other bull case that's more general is that EMV which is another term for these chips that you now see on your cards. More and more retailers are requiring you, if you have a chip card, to, to dip it instead of swipe it, to insert the card in their reader and then to sign. And it's turning out to be a pretty horrific user experience. I don't know what your experience has been, but it can take as much as 15 seconds. Now, that's 
you know, a standard deviation or two away from the average, but it certainly can take 15 seconds and frequently takes four or five seconds. And you have lots of instances of people dipping and pulling out before you've got authentication, which requires a whole nother transaction to be initiated. And so where before chip cards, there was truly no motivation for me to use my phone versus using cards which once swiped worked perfectly well and I was highly trained and so were tellers. If I've now got this new and annoying behavior that I'm being expected to adopt, that might create the context whereby I say, you know what, actually this Apple Pay thing or this Target Pay thing might indeed be easier. And if there's actually a loyalty program associated with it and a digital receipt, okay, you know, maybe I'll give that a shot. So I think those are the bull cases, but we're far from knowing who's correct here. That's a great instance. I might uh, just be a unique experiencer of 2Z events, but I feel like all of my (laughs) chip payments take a good 15 seconds. (laughs) Is that right? Okay. So, you know, I mean, I haven't actually had the experience myself, but this is the anecdotal and increasingly quantitative evidence is that this has been a disaster and it may provide you know, the, the groundwork for people to look for alternatives uh, to what newly is an actual problem for mobile payments to solve. It's funny because it is really a tremendously annoying experience. And, you know, 15 seconds doesn't sound like a lot, but if you're used to it taking one, it's just a, it's a horrific new experience. I mean, it's just amazingly. And then if you, if you abandon it halfway through and have start over, I mean, it really, so I, this is kind of, you know, oddly, people thought EMV would be the answer because it required merchants to upgrade their point of sale hardware. And so therefore, more and more merchants would, while they were doing that, put NFC in place. And so EMV would be the best thing for Apple Pay because it would allow them to build a hardware footprint of acceptance on the back of this regulatory mandate. But it may turn out to be the salvation of mobile payments because of this delay issue. Uh, But I still think we need more. We need either a multi-merchant loyalty system that Apple introduces or merchants need to somehow directly get more aggressive. Um, We need to push people across that tipping point. Very interesting. Uh, So let's talk about some of the other themes that are emerging in payments. Or do you think there are other themes that are starting to come out? For example, um, you're on the board of Douala. Uh, Can you tell us a bit about what they're doing? Yeah, so Douala um, actually has a pretty robust uh, peer-to-peer payments business, multi-billions of dollars of transaction volume. They have moved that to be a merchant payments business like everyone does and and have significant volume there. But I mean, and, and I'm, I'm not on the board of Douala, but Ben and I speak frequently. He's a terrific entrepreneur. I think he is not one of these guys ultimately who can live without a business model. And, you know, he and the board, you know, recognized years ago that peer-to-peer payments is not a business. Um, And so where they've gone is in effect the same place as, you know, what you read about with these blockchain oriented technology companies, which is to say a recognition that the payments infrastructure in the U.S. is antiquated and slow and and lossy. and what Dwell has done is build essentially a modern real-time payments architecture that works within existing financial institutions. They've got banks and credit unions using it for interbank transfers that are real-time. And they've got capital markets participants like the CME 
which is one of the largest exchanges in the country that use it to settle collateral transactions. So from one trading counterparty to the other, instead of waiting 36 hours for wires or bank transfers to process, you know, to uh, process, they can use Dwala to reduce the amount of collateral they require by enabling real-time transfers. So Dwala has very much migrated from being a, a kind of a branded payments company. They still have that business, but the where the gold is in their case is, um, is more of an infrastructure play. And it's sort of like Ben jokes that, you know, it, it, it kind of took Bitcoin and the blockchain in a weird way for banks to come full circle to Douala and say like, oh yeah, this is, it's like the blockchain, but for dollars is sort of his joke. <laughs> um, and that's been uh, getting a lot of support traction lately. It sounds like a really unique play. Are you seeing others interested in tackling infrastructure? You know, there's a lot, I and mean, this really has become the thrust of the Bitcoin movement these days with entrepreneurs like Blythe Masters, who's a fabulously talented uh, executive with a 20-year career at J.P. Morgan, now runs something called Digital Asset Holdings. And she and a couple dozen, I would say, other companies tackling this opportunity of financial markets and banking and payments infrastructure, leveraging the distributed ledger idea, the distributed ledger architecture that underpins Bitcoin and or the Bitcoin blockchain itself as ways to think about real-time, fault-tolerant, secure architectures for moving money around. Um, so yeah, I think it's a very much of the moment kind of idea. It's one that's really hard. I mean, it is one that frequently requires more than one financial institution, many times a dozen or more financial institutions to kind of sign off because you're talking about counterparties and you're talking about, you know, fundamentally transactions that involve inherently involve multiple parties. So um, those are really difficult social problems layered on top of really difficult technology problems. So while it's clearly a popular problem set right now, it's one that uh, I don't think you're going to see any quick wins in, although over the long term, you may see some really big companies built. Are you investing in blockchain uh, type companies or are you holding back for a bit to see where this goes? Well, I have a, a great interest in in, in Bitcoin, for sure, slightly less so in these more generic blockchain companies. But it has been a challenge for me. You know, it's a, I, uh, the, the guy who is the chief scientist of, of the, the Bitcoin Foundation, the guy who effectively took over from Satoshi four and a half years ago, this guy Gavin Andreessen, uh, was actually CTO of one of my companies in the late 90s. So I've, I've known him for almost 20 years. I've known about this since he started working on it. Um, and it's um, it's sort of a quandary for me in that if you look across all of the things I care about, payments, lending, investing, insurance, they could all really be kind of revolutionized as a result of adoption of, uh, of Bitcoin, broadly speaking. And yet, it's also speculative. I mean, it was certainly speculative three years ago, and it's still speculative today and, and volatile. Um, and so we, you know, our model of investing, we don't, we don't really sort of buy options and things. We, we invest generally speaking with high conviction and it's been, it's been extremely hard for me to gain the requisite level of conviction to, to back a company. So we did some, something kind of interesting, which is created something called the digital currency group about two years ago, partnered with an entrepreneur and a friend, a guy named Barry Silbert 
who was best known for founding Second Market, which he sold to NASDAQ. But within Second Market, he had built three different digital currency businesses, a trading business, an asset management business, a conference business. And he'd also personally invested in all of the leading companies. I think you know his companies, companies he's an early investor in have gone on to raise 90% of the capital raised by by Bitcoin companies. And so I basically went to him and said, look, let me invest in your portfolio. Let me buy uh, into what you're doing and we can use the money that I put in to, to do more. And so I effectively catalyzed the spinoff from Second Market. We've invested three or $4 million in that. And then recently, Barry raised another $25 million from major players like MasterCard and CIBC and and some some folks who haven't yet been named large financial institutions to further back what what he and I got started a couple of years ago. So you know for me it scratched a few itches. Um, you know the entity owns uh, a little bit over one percent of all the Bitcoin in the world. So we have exposure to the currency itself. We have exposure to all the leading companies. We have an incredible flow of information. Um, about what's going on. And so I don't feel like I'm kind of missing out. And I feel like I've got some, you know, the appropriate amount of financial exposure to what is a fascinating phenomena. But yet, I've been able to hedge my bets a little bit and and be able to play the skeptic, which uh, for better or for worse, kind of suits my personality. So that's sort of what we what I've done in in Bitcoin so far. I think we'll do more. I think things will become more clear over time, and and you know we'll hopefully be close enough to the forefront to be aggressive uh, when we're able to gain higher conviction. You know, a lot of that movement seems to have stemmed out of a mistrust of banks and centralized institutions. Um, you know, it's been an interesting space in banks because there seem to have been a lot of startups who have taken a run at that and maybe very few who have been successful at actually cracking in. Uh, you were on the board of Bank Simple, I think, and yeah. um, curious what your reflections are on that experience. Yeah, I mean, Bank Simple, uh, I mean, it's certainly... Uh, interestingly, I'm still on the board. Um, it's a relatively little known fact, but I'm actually chairman of the subsidiary of BBVA. Um, just kind of for fun. I mean, it, it's, I personally was just really eager to see what would happen. Uh, when this enormous global top 10 global Spanish bank bought this scrappy company in Portland, Oregon, uh, and, and decided to leave it alone. And so they asked me to kind of stay on as chairman to, to in effect, keep everybody honest um, about the leaving them alone part. And I was happy to do it because it's been a fascinating front row seat on what is one possible you know, sort of likely outcome, if you will, of much of the fintech innovation, which is that the, the actual dominant financial institutions don't go away. Uh, but need to integrate some of this new thinking and many of these new technologies and some of these new bright people. And how do they do that without squashing them or driving them all the way in droves or leaving the projects unfinished? And I think what BBVA has done with Simple is sort of so far the best best example of that. So, you know, as as an investment, it was terrific. We invested at a six million dollar valuation. They bought it for about 120 million. It was pretty capital efficient. The company raised maybe 20 million total along the way. So, you know, not every dollar made uh made a a 20 times return, but but certainly an aggregate, everyone made money. It was not as revolutionary as the rhetoric of the early days. In 0809, the way that Simple was able to get a quarter million people to sign a wait, sign up to a waiting list to become customers was by 
by portraying themselves as the bank that doesn't suck. And that was a time in the teeth of the financial crisis when the conviction that banks sucked was really high. Um, and yet, you know, Simple was effectively built on top of a bank because the fact is that the government, our government, every, every government requires in every financial transaction that there be a bank. You, you can't really operate outside the system. And so we click, quickly learned at Simple that, you know, beyond the marketing message, we had to somehow synthesize these ideas that on one hand, we were doing something different than the incumbents, but on the other hand, we were dependent on the incumbents and that alienating them at every turn was probably not actually a good strategy. And so, you know, ultimately resulted in, in Simple being wholly owned by an incumbent. And that kind of arc, I think, a lot of people are going to go through. I mean, interestingly, there's a company called TransferWise um, in the remittance category of payments, so cross-border consumer payments. They um, they were probably the most aggressive kind of uh, simple bank, simple type positioning. A couple three years ago, when they launched, they were you know running naked around the streets of London and New York, you know, painting that you know, anti-bank slogans on their bodies. <laughs> um, and they just announced last week that they were, you know, now partnering with banks to, you know, deliver their services to uh, to bank customers. So uh, I think that the, the sort of maturity phase of fintech has pretty firmly kicked in and that more and more of these one-time renegades um, are, not, are not knuckling under to... The realities of our, you know, actual financial services world, but rather, I think, maturing to the fact that if they want to truly have scalable impact, they've got to have deep relationships with incumbent financial institutions. You know, and as many of these companies have matured, um, it still does seem that their value propositions are kind of the same, that they don't suck as much as the incumbents do. Um, do you think that those uh, those innovations are enough to sustain businesses like, say, Zenefits? So I think there is a danger that you have merely incremental kind of innovations that probably exist merely to goad the incumbents into doing a better job versus creating a sufficient you know, platform on which to really build a big business. I think Zenefits, Zenefits has some issues. I wouldn't say that being incremental is their primary issue. I think Zenefits has a pretty neat trick under the hood, which is that, in fact, no business pays directly for benefits brokerage. You know, the benefits broker is paid by the insurance carrier. Aetna pays whatever you know, street corner benefits broker you use, or Marsh McLennan if you're a big company, to organize and quote for you and compete you know, carriers one against the other to get you the benefits package that you think is right for your employees. And, and so it was always free, in effect, except for, of course, the fact that you know, the carriers bake it into their pricing. And so what Zenefits did was basically say, hey, you know, why don't we give away some software? And therefore, we're, we're offering free software. And the carriers will pay us those commissions. So they became a, a really differentiated experience. And if you were comparing your you know, employee census on a piece of paper or a spreadsheet and all the time on the phone with your broker versus elegant software that captured that census and, and gave you a bunch of HR tools you didn't previously have, and it was, they were both free, well, you were definitely going to choose benefits. So 
it wasn't a technological innovation, but it was a business model innovation that was, I would say, more than merely incremental. Now, the question is whether it's defensible uh, and whether it's scalable. And they, and they surely have run into problems scaling. I end up thinking that um, as a tech-enabled commercial insurance broker, uh, they've got a, a pretty good-sized opportunity if they can run fast enough and not blow themselves up along the way. Now, they were valued at $4.5 billion when they were doing $20 million in revenue. And supposedly on their way to 100 this year, it looks like it'll be closer to 60 or 70. So, you know, 20 to 70 is a great growth. Whether any of that's worth anything close to $4.5 billion is, uh, is a tough question. And whether it will serve them ultimately to have become so, quote unquote, valuable so early in their growth trajectory, you know, I tend to think that's not the right way to build a business. But uh, I also never bet against entrepreneurs. So we'll, we'll see what they're <laughs> able to do. I think there are a lot who would agree with you. Uh, you know, it's it, your description of the model of buying insurance is funny to me because I spent quite a lot of time late last year with my tech company actually hunched over those kinds of spreadsheets and calling brokers. And it's amazing to me that in 2014, 2015, that's still the experience in the insurance industry. That's an area you highlighted as emerging. What are some of the themes you see there? Well, I think there are... Uh... It is an area where it's sort of easy to do better than the incumbents. You know, we have Oscar Health, which is a carrier. Uh, so there's a there's a few brave souls who decided to go the regulatory route and become insurance carriers. Oscar has had to raise, you know, they probably raised and spent $30 million before they were actually even granted a license. And now they've raised and spent $150 million building a health insurance carrier. I think they're fabulously smart people and, and are making great progress, but it's kind of inherently capital intensive. There's a company called Lemonade that is becoming a carrier um, in the renter's insurance space. And I think they will do some new and neat stuff, but they will always have the expense and the latency that comes with dealing with the 50 state patchwork quilt of, of insurance regulation. But if you really want to innovate, I think you have to be a carrier. I think the sort of gussied up brokers uh that op that opportunity existed in in um in corporate insurance but i don't think like there's a breakout opportunity in auto or a breakout opportunity just for a or in life just for kind of a tech enabled broker per se um we have a company called just works that is growing very quickly that's also it's competing effectively with benefits but we think solving a more fundamental problem which is that for employers who have 50, and actually as of the end of the year, 99 employees or fewer, they're technically small group, which means they end up getting very bad prices for health insurance. Large group, you know, on a you know per employee basis can be 30 or 40 times less expensive than small group. JustWorks is what's called a PEO, meaning where they, they effectively bundle the lives of a bunch of small employers. Now they have thousands of lives uh, and they've grown 5x this year over last year. And so they can get large group pricing for small groups, tying everyone together through a really elegant uh, technology and, and risk management process to make sure that um, they're taking on risk prudently. So that's the kind of thing where, I mean, again, it's a young company, but we feel like if they can execute there's a value proposition for smaller companies there on the insurance side that is a fundamental disruption that nobody offering, even you know, however you polish a small group policy, it's going to be 40% more expensive than what JustWorks can get you. And we think ultimately that's, um, that's a kind of innovation that uh, can, can attract a large part of the market. 
It's fascinating because it also sounds like an incredibly simple idea. I'm sure it takes a, a lot of skill and a lot of talent to be able to pull off and actually execute. Yeah, PEOs have been around for a long time. Um, there's a public company called Trinet, for instance, which is a PEO. Um, it's hard to do well. Uh, the risk management aspects of convincing Aetna, for instance, that you know the assemblage of employers that make up the JustWorks body is, you know, an underwritable unit similar to how they underwrite, you know, General Motors. So yeah, the barriers to entry are quite high, but it is when when done right, a very powerful value prop. What are some of the areas that you think should have been founded um, or should have sponsored new companies to be founded or uh, some new themes that you think aren't being tackled that should be? You know, I my I mean, it sounds funny, like a funny thing to be passionate about, but <laughs> I am quite passionate about B2B payments. So the statistic that shocks most people and still shocks me is that 62% of business-to-business payments in the U.S. are made by paper check. And wow. that, to me, is like, how can that be? You know, I mean, and it's totally a solved problem in most other countries. And, and in this country, in terms of retail payments checks have effectively gone away. And so I, I think that this doesn't get enough attention to get, you know, a lot of my attention. And I think that if you look at the cost and risk and just lack of modernity that is implicit in that statistic, I think it tells you all you need to know about, you know, that is going to change. It may take five years, it may take 10 years, but it's going to change. And in doing so, save a lot of people a lot of time and money. And that's the kind of dynamic I want to be on the right side of. Great food for thought for entrepreneurs who will be listening. Thanks so okay. much, Matt. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, great to talk today. Thanks. Take care. You can reach Matt on Twitter at Matt C. Harris. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, remember to subscribe through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. (laughs) 